Hi, this is Bill Prater, and welcome to the Business Builder Show, where we feature champions in their respective industries from all over the planet. Our mission is to provide you with timely, provocative, and actionable resources that will inspire, promote, and accelerate your quest for business excellence. Today, we're going to find out how to roll up a really fragmented industry, and, and Mark Rubenstein is going to teach us how to do that. Now, Mark's a CIA. That's the Culinary Institute of America. He graduated, and he since then has spent his entire career in the hospitality industry, realizing that there was an opportunity to roll up services within three-tier system across the U.S. He started AHEAD for Profits in 2011, designed to navigate uh, between the supplier, the wholesaler, and the retail industries and navigate the complexities of individual state laws. Now, that's an issue. He started a partnership in a company to become the nation's largest individual provider of beverage uh, dispensa management, system design, and installation for the liquor, beer, and wine industries. Mark, it's fantastic to have you here, sir. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Now, I know you've got a, a bit of a complex business, which is fantastic. So tell us, who do you serve among your customers, vendors, partners, et cetera? As you alluded to, we navigate within what is defined as a three-tier system. And the three-tier system really was created federally as prohibition ended. And it was designed to separate the retailer, which you would think of as a local restaurant, the supplier, Anheuser-Busch, Molson Coors, and the wholesaler, the third-party uh, group of business that distributes liquor, beer, and wine to the retail level. We're one of the few countries that has this. Um, it's designed to promote growth. It's designed to promote um, uh, competition. If you look at countries like Great Britain, it's a two-tier system. If you go have a beer in Great Britain, it's probably owned by one of the brewers. Here, that's completely different and completely opposite. And so we service all three. We service all three simultaneously. And our, our thinking here is that if we win with one, we win with all. The brewer needs a channel to sell their product at the restaurant level. The wholesalers want to keep those retailers happy. And so it's a, it's a, it's a self-perpetuating business model once we got any level of scale. So uh, you've been around in the industry for quite some time and you identified, I know, some problems which you and your organization is able to solve. So tell us about the problems that this three-tier system creates for your uh, constituency, Mark. Well, the, the three-tier system, most people don't know it. They're just affected by it. And prior to the craft beer revolution, 2010, 2011, you had 189 breweries throughout the United States. You had most of those were what we would recognize as the light lagers type, Anheuser-Busch. You know, everybody knew those handful of beers. And the wholesaler at that point, in agreement with suppliers, they have agreement with suppliers, really had their own internal departments. They had their own mechanisms by which they would support the retail industry. Well, those economics changed dramatically with the advent of the craft beer revolution. And craft beer all of a sudden started to chip away at the light lager market share. And by virtue of that, the wholesalers, the economics at the wholesale level changed. 
they are held in compliance by these contracts, but they weren't able to do to beat or to beat compliant economically. So that's when they started to look to outsource. And at that point, there were a handful of companies throughout the United States that they could outsource, but nobody could outsource to any level of scale. In other words, Anheuser-Busch couldn't look to one company or Molson Coors couldn't look to one company. Individual wholesalers and individual markets would look to try and do this. And it's expensive. It was an expensive proposition for us to do it because it's your staffing, you have fleet, you have insurance requirements, you have facilities and equipment. And it took us, it took a fair amount of capital and a fair amount of blood, sweat and tears, quite honestly, to be able to, to scale with any one wholesaler well enough, the preponderance of wholesalers, which is what we touch now. And so that's where the challenge came from, that it was individual small business owners that were providing these levels of services, but it quickly outkicked their coverage. It quickly became too large for them to handle. Simultaneously, as we succeeded in one market, we were wanted in other markets. We were wanted not only by sister wholesalers or by Anheuser-Busch or Molson Coors, but also by large retailers. They wanted the same levels of service across the U.S. that they were getting in other markets. And there was no unified provider at that point. And we sort of anticipated all of this. We didn't scale that readily right out of the gate, but we built our company to meet that scale. So, Mark, how do you typically solve uh, the problem that you just articulated? Maybe a case study or two you would, would tell our listeners, show our listeners, you know, what it is that you do, if you will, mechanically to solve the problem. Well, if you look at how the beer industry is governed, that is governed by an entity called the Brewers Association. Brewers Association is made up of a number of, of key players within the, within the industry as a whole, and they set the standards by which beer is to be maintained at the restaurant level. And they, they maintain those standards by providing audits and by executing audits, and they do this on a national level. And it was quickly apparent to the craft brewer world that these standards were not being met. Hence, the pressure was put on the providers at that point to do a better job, and they were not able to meet that demand. Economically, again, they were forced to look for other options. And that's how we came in. So we would, we were, we were, this business model of ours came to be because a wholesaler in Nashville, Tennessee approached us and said, we can't do this anymore. They knew of us through other business relationships. We spent better part of 10 months business planning this. Went back to them with a proposition and we they became our first client. We had 500 lines here in the national market that we were cleaning to the Brewers Association standard. And what that meant was we sent service personnel to the restaurant, followed procedure by using certain chemical and cleaning the lines to a certain process, breaking the systems down, putting the systems back together again, tracking it by date and calendar, and then reporting that information to the supplier on behalf of the wholesaler. And if you listen to that whole connection, now the, now the wholesaler is being compliant, the supplier is happy that their product is being met to, to the Brewer Association standard, but the retailer also has a better product. You have to think of beer as an organic, beer is organic. The best analogy I can give you is if you were running milk through a beer line, you'd have to clean it. And you could visually or emotionally understand if you didn't clean it, what it would look like. Beer, you don't realize that, 
but you will get off flavors and off tastes. And all that does means that you won't consume that beer anymore. And in many cases, that beer that you taste at the bar or at a restaurant is your first opportunity to taste that beer before you might go buy it at a retail location in a bottle or a can. And more times than not, if it's not maintained this way, it is a poor product. One of our sales pitches is that the supply chain, Anheuser-Busch or Molson Coors makes a great product. The wholesaler does everything they're supposed to do. It gets to the restaurant and then it's affected by the last part of that touch point of running through that system. So 98% of the whole supply chain and the life cycle of that beer is perfect. And then the last point is affected. And so what we do is ensure that that last point is perfect so that the customer's expectation is met. And so we grow draft products. So, uh, so uh, what's your revenue stream look like? How do you, uh, how do you uh, charge for your services? So our business is built on three, on three verticals. Line cleaning is one. Line cleaning is our largest revenue segment, and that is a okay. per line process. So the Brewer Association mandates that lines are cleaned every two weeks. We clean okay. on a rotation every two weeks, and we track all of those lines. We touch roughly 30, some odd, 33, 34,000 restaurants every two weeks now in about 16 states. And we charge the wholesaler, in most cases, uh, a per line, a negotiated per line fee. Um, the reason why I said wholesaler in most cases, if you take a step back about the, the differences in states, you, you opened up by making that statement. The they are, referred, they are referred to as wholesale states or retail states. Wholesale states means the wholesalers pay for this service. Tennessee is one of those. In other states, the retailer pays for that service because the state laws allow that responsibility to be pushed back to the restaurant level. We have focused, and we, we did focus for reason, for obvious reasons, on the wholesaler states. Right now, we have about 95 wholesalers as clients well, we have 95 clients that touch 30 some odd thousand restaurants. We recently expanded in Chicago or the state of Illinois where we have 3,000 clients and I have 3,000 clients. So from an accounting standpoint, a sales and marketing standpoint, it's a much different model. Um, so we focus on the wholesale estates. So the revenue stream for us in line cleaning primarily, we clean lines, we build a wholesaler and then they just pay us for that. And that's a negotiated contractual obligation. Right. And so I'm, I'm hearing you say really it's a recurring monthly revenue model that you, you can have because you, you've got a Absolutely. contract for X dollars per line. That's a nice model. I like that. So uh, how are you different from your competitors out there, Mark? Well, I think we, well, I think we pay better. <laughs> uh, because of our scale, we're able to offer, you know, we're able to offer the traditional, I think, fair and good hiring type package for individuals. We offer scale, we offer promotional opportunity. Many of our leadership today, much of our leadership today came from the entry level ranks all through these years. And we now employ just shy of 400 people. Uh, when we started with three partners and three employees. Out of the 65 leaders that I define as leadership, people that will attend our national conference, um, 45 of those came from entry level positions. And I think that's key that we now offer them opportunities outside of what does the core line cleaning. And some of it is, you know, 
executive leadership. Some of it is different skill sets mechanically, and they are trained so that they are true practitioners of the trade. What we do at the line cleaning level isn't complicated, but to install a system and maintain a system takes a lot of learning. It takes a lot of training and a lot of investment, both on our side monetarily, but on their side also. And so we're able to offer futures and help people just grow within an industry that has historically been underserved. Oh, that's good. That's great. Well, let, let's talk a little bit more about your company. So uh, you mentioned that you started off with three uh, partners and uh, three employees, if you will. So when was that? And, and uh, walk us through the milestones, Mark, as you built your business up until today. Well, we, I've got some good stories and I've got... Well, I think your listeners might like this, a bad story, but as I said, we started business planning this in 2010 at the request of one of the wholesalers here in Nashville and spent about 10 months doing that, went back to them with this proposition and started, just started a business, went out and introduced so, ourselves. So uh, at that time, Mark, what, what, what was your company providing to the industry prior that to that point, request? What we were doing was... At that point, we had business planned all three verticals of our revenue, but we were okay. only cleaning lines. Okay, got it. And I didn't bring it. I did not have a beer background. I had a hospitality background. One of the partners brought the financial wherewithal to the company, and we went out and brought in somebody from the beer industry. We worked for both Anheuser-Busch and Molson Coors to bring that level of expertise. So we had to just get revenue started. We had to meet mm -hmm. our contractual obligation. And while we did that, we went ahead as a company and garnered certification so that we could work on the systems I just described, so that we became talented in working on Micromatic systems or Perlic systems. These are brands that you would see if you're in a location. And there's certifications that you have to meet and testing that you have to abide by. And so we, we garnered that. Then we started to grow that segment of the business and provided those installations or refurbishments, new construction, things that you might, you know, you might anticipate if you walk into a restaurant. We started in 2011. We did $65,000 in revenue the last three months of 2011. Um, and then we just continued to layer on back and forth. We added another wholesaler here in Nashville. We then were fortunate enough to... Uh, get a wholesaler in South Carolina. It was the first out-of-state wholesaler. And that that particular wholesaler was tied to the Reyes Holdings family or the Reyes Beverage Group, the nation's largest independent wholesaler uh, family. And by virtue of that, we did a nice job there. They wanted us in other markets. As we leapfrogged around in different states, we were able to network with our relationships and we picked up wholesaler after wholesaler. Our growing pains came from the capital that was required to do that. But it cost us around $25 a line to go into a brand new market. And what I mean by that is we left Nashville and went to Orlando right. as an example, or any, pick any market. If they had 5,000 lines in that total market, it cost us 25 bucks a line just to get the doors open. We would not receive any payment because of the way the contracts work. You have to go through a couple cycles and they start to pay you for six weeks. It took about 18 months to get our money back on a market of that size for one wholesaler. And so we were now being, you know, we were expanding in a number of different markets simultaneously. 
which is what made the partnership pretty advantageous and also gave great growth opportunity. And we were able to do that well. We self-funded all of that. We were negative cash flow for quite a period of time with all of our profit, all of our cash coming in was going into expansion. Where we really made a mistake, and I am much wiser at this now, was on the fleet side. Because you really don't have fleet available to you as a small company until you have any level of scale. And we literally bought cars of any make, style, and flavor from Toyota. And we did it all as personal guarantees. Oh, that's not like fun. It was not fun. Um, <laughs> however, uh, probably in 60, 2015 or 16, literally somebody from Enterprise drove by our office and saw all these cars out there that were logoed. And they came in and said, listen, we have a proposition for you. So they, they rolled up all of our fleet. And now they're all operating leases. None are under our names anymore. But if anybody ever asked me if they wanted to get into a route-based business, what not to do, that would be the first thing I would tell them. So That was nice. That's nice. Sounds like you're in the coincidence business a little bit. <laughs> well, I, you know, our partnership is such, it's my job to sort of outkick our covers a little bit. It's their job to blow the wagon and still make it work. You know, Interesting. We, you know, we're, we're entrepreneurial at heart and you have to, you have to sell, you have to, if you, if you lose that, then, you know, you bought yourself a job basically in my view. So. So uh, you mentioned a lot about your culture of promoting with, from within and so forth and so on. Uh, Mark, tell us about your uh, management structure. So, so how, how, how do you, uh, you ultimately, how are you organized now and how many changes in management structure have you had to make as you grew your business state to state to state? We we started as a partnership of three. We are now a partnership of five. Okay. I am the CEO. One of the original founders is the CFO. The other original founder brought the beer expertise. We have one partner and all he does is focus on the supplier relationship. In other words, he spends all of his time with the new Belgians of the world and the Anheuser-Busch's of the world because they're the ones that dictate how the industry is going to move. And then we also have a, we have another partner now that focuses a lot on our technology. These guys came in, somebody actually bought them because we needed cash just a number of years ago, and somebody we needed the expertise. And so we gave them part of the business for their sweat equity. Um, as we... As we expanded, we opened up with what we term as market managers, people that are responsible for regional footprints that touched all three of our own verticals. As we got scale, then we had regionals that covered more than one, one market manager footprint. As it stands today, the five partners, myself and the CFO, have direct operational roles every day. The other three partners are plug and played as we expand. They are the pliable members, and they are willing to do whatever it takes because the expansion is, it's feverish, but it's inconsistent. And I could, I could explain that, you know, how we got into the other markets because we hadn't planned that way it to sort of happen. And these are the guys that are great in market and help us just, you know, get the markets up and running while we overlay our system. We now have a director of operations. He's a, he's a young guy, his name is Jusnil Fernandez. He is Cuban American, he's out of Miami. He runs all operations, all three levels of it. We now have within the services side, we have somebody that sits above that out of California. 
and think of our service program sort of models what you would think if you needed your air conditioning service at home. You have a company that you call, they come in and they fix if you have a problem, they recommend if it needs to be replaced, they might put you on a PM program. We run that section and then on the, if you were building a home and you wanted a brand new air conditioning system installed, we have a vertical for that. That's our third. Those are our three. We have leadership above all of those. We have regional personnel um, within all three of those tiers. And then we have sales personnel in the sales and installation side. And that is managed by a director of sales. And she happens to reside out of Charleston, South Carolina. So we truly have people all over the country now that manage our footprint on a national level. So you mentioned uh, that you've got, I, th I think, because I remember an annual meeting and, 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 and a large number of your employees come to that session. How about planning? Uh, how do you go about uh, your annual planning or quarterly planning? Or what's your planning process, Mark, look like? Well, we, we have leadership meetings monthly. Okay. On and on an ongoing basis. There are 12 members that are participating in that. There's partnership and key personnel. And that's probably a Zoom call nowadays. It's a Zoom, but all those, I think eight of them are out of the national market. Okay. Then the annual convention represents owner or the partnership, executives, leadership at all levels, and sales personnel. And that will be for three days here. That's three days. It's always the first, either the end of October or beginning of November, depending on how the calendar falls. And that is keynote speakers. It is uh, reflection on where the company has been for the last year and its performance, uh, direction on where the company is going to go. We really don't keep a whole lot hidden from anybody. Okay. You know, we wear our emotions on our sleeve. We let them know, you know, I look at these people as being integral in our ability to expand. It's usually one full session in the morning that has keynote speakers uh, on each of the two mornings. And then we have breakouts. We have strategic partnerships then that come in and spend time. And we do have a number of partnerships by virtue of us having gained such market share. We have a lot of other companies that want to work with us. We're very discerning about that, but it gives us a great organic sales tool through those companies. But we really are very, very particular on who we partner with. They have, they have to be responsive to us and we have to be responsive to them. And this is a way for our companies to collaborate and really fine tune best practices so we perform at a high level. And then it's continuing education. We have a corporate book club that we have once a month that I host with uh, one of the leaders of the company, and we go through four books a year that we uh, basically, you know, meet once a month, and they, they have required reading, and it's all on development, because the way I look at this, you know, my ability to, I can do a deal, I can scale somewhere, but if I don't have leadership coming up behind us in, in these efforts, then we're not going to succeed very well, and so that's, it's really team building and management development, and then What's next kind of growth? So, uh, son, you're, you're very much you're into employee development, so forth and so on. Do you have like uh, employees of the month, employee of the year kinds of things going on? We do. Okay. T tell us a bit we about do. that. So, we, each department head nominate, we have five employees of the month 
Okay. They are nominated out of a team, out of you know, each category nominates people. The leadership of each category then chooses one for that particular month. All five of those go out on all of our social medias. They go internal, but also all of our social medias, Instagram, Facebook, you know, you name it, they get out there. Um, and then out of all of those, we nominate one employee of the year. That person is brought into the company. Um, they get to share and sit as a part of and everything else. Even, And this could be an entry-level person. It could be a five-year skilled lead, skilled technician, doesn't matter. Um, and they get to participate in the whole thing. You know, I've I've grown up in a restaurant business and employees or your teammates have always been integral in the success, particularly in, in fine dining, which is my background. You needed people that were experts. But if COVID hasn't taught us anything, the ability to nurture, train and develop and retain employees coming out of it is paramount. And so we put as much effort against that. And it's not lost on us that a third of our employees are route-based guys. They're out there working on their own. They're out there customer-facing. And it's not the sexiest of jobs in the world, but they are the ones that represent our brand. And if they pass through those gates, they get sort of to move up in other opportunities. And so we try to focus very hard on, on nurturing them and creating an environment by which they want to be a part of the company. So uh, do your, most of your employees wear a certain uniform day-to-day? -day yes. Are they, okay, they do. Okay, tell us about the uh, your whole uniform idea. And well, remember, we represent, currently, we go as far northeast as Washington, D.C. Okay. To the Florida Keys. We now have offices in California and Chicago. But in South Florida, we don't make them wear long pants. They can wear shorts, but they still have to wear a logo shirt. For all the okay. installers, the people, they all have either logo sweatshirts or branded jackets, depending on the environment that they work in. In Chicago in January, you know, they, they have a much different attire than our guys in, in South Florida might wear. But they're all sure. logo branded. They all do, they, they're allowed to wear hats, but they have to wear our hats. We learned that mistake very early on, too, when we were given a bunch of swag and our guys would wear Miller hats or Budweiser hats. And all we did was offend either Miller or Budweiser. And so they have to wear the approved, uh, approved uh, uniforming that we, that we provided them. So uh, is, are they allowed to or encouraged to wear their uniforms when they're out on their own on the weekend and going to a restaurant and so forth? Do they tend to, no. do they love, do they love wearing uniforms or what's the, what's they the rule? They love wearing uniforms, but we restrict that. And we restrict okay. it because of the nature of the industry that we're in. If, if I go to a football game, and that's probably one of the few things I spend a lot of money on is NFL or college. And if I go and drink, if I'm drinking a beer of choice at a tailgate, you know, we don't let anybody take our picture or anything else. Because half of my clients are Molson Coors people, and the other half are Anheuser-Busch people, and I will offend one of those. Oh, so good. no matter what I do, sort of sort of like politics. Um but no matter what I did, so we, they can do whatever they'd like to do, but they're not allowed to go out and to have a drink or do whatever they do in our uniform. And thanks okay. for that. How about, how about uh, like the employees of the month and other sorts of honors people earn? Do they get badges and that type of thing for the uniforms? They, they do get badges. And we do a whole badge program of one year, five year, seven year. If they go through certain types of um, educational programs, we recognize that. That's the uniforming and hats that they get for employee of the year. 
boasts that well for them. And so, yes, we do make a big deal out of that. Oh, beautiful. I love, I love that philosophy. I like your overall approach to nurturing your team. Sounds fantastic. Mark, what's holding you back now? What do you see as the challenges coming up? Well, if you ask me directly today, I would say it's, it's employee recruitment. It's still a challenge. Um, we had our we had our meetings this morning. We meet weekly on total number of open positions, total amount of applicants by marketplace, um, turnover rates, and it's ebbing in the right direction. But for the last two years, it has been extraordinarily challenging. And so, it's employees, employees, employees. I think it's the biggest challenge. the The opportunity to expand the organic nature of our industry that we are in is it's ready to be rolled up we we do this in 2010 or 11 it's coming to fruition now covid has accelerated it so my worry is not missing the opportunity but not uh, not over expanding to a point where i don't do it well what i what i mean by that is is that the wholesaler industry is looking to have fewer and fewer employees. These large, large companies are looking to do that. They're also looking to embrace technology, which allows fewer employees. Some of the legacy companies, similar to ours, but much, but have been historically smaller. These are family-owned companies. The kids don't want them anymore. And I think that's sociological a little bit. I think trades in our country have been affected for a lot of years anyway. But these companies are coming on the market and we can buy them fairly and in many cases bring the principals in for a few years. They do very well. We do do earn out type packages on the acquisition because we can. It does make sense for us to do that. Um, and there is a lot of opportunity to do it. But as I alluded to, it takes a fair amount of capital to do it and human personnel, human capital to do it well. So it's, it's balancing that seesaw effect of opportunity and, and the ability to do it well is, is really the only big worry. It's not the concept, it's not the demand. The concept and the demand are as the proven truth from what we thought they would be. Fantastic. That's a great opportunity to have in front of you. So uh, Mark, uh, tell our listeners, they might be potential customers, they might be potential team members, they might be uh, potential people for you to acquire and so forth. How would those various people get a hold of you? Well, we have, I think a good, yeah, we have a good web presence um, at okay. hyperprofits.com. Um, I'm approachable. People reach out to me. I had a customer, good, better, or different. I had a customer complaint the other day where you know we we did not leave his restaurant the way we intended to, and he was able to directly reach out to me, and he found me through our newsletter. We send a newsletter out to every single retailer that we have on a monthly basis. That also talks about our employee of the month, but also talks about trends in the industry and new dynamics. Um, but I answer my phone, you know, that, uh, you know, I, it's never lost to me that we're in a hospitality business. I just happen to be focusing on this, on this segment, the three tier and liquor, beer and wine segment of the industry. But I've, I'm in a hospitality business and I have to make myself approachable hundred percent of the time. So, okay, great. Okay. So Mark, uh, what's one question that you thought I should have asked you and I didn't, that would give uh, the question and the answer to it would give our listeners great value. What would that question be? 
Well, I would think like with any business, is there anything that could cause this business to become obsolete down the line? And I get that I get asked this question by investment perspective investment uh, people or banks, quite honestly, uh, because banking has become much more attractive. Attractive. The reality is, I think we have invested heavily in humans, where technology is making the industry, and I mean this at all levels, better for them. But what we do, you cannot have machinery do. You cannot have systems do because the wear and tear, the cost, everything else is just too extreme. And so we are investing heavily in humans, and I don't ever see that going away. Um, the compliance is never going to go away. Yeah, we are the envy of the world as far as our three-tier system goes. You know, we have now over 10,000 breweries in the United States. I have friends all across the world that doesn't love what we do and come here for our variety of beers. And that's not going to change either. So I don't see anything affecting, you know, this business long term. As long as we understand that it's going to be a human business, not a mechanized business. And if you have any hospitality people in here, they're going to, you know, technology is going to help restaurants perform better. Point of sale is going to get smarter. Menu options are going to get smarter. Financial packages are going to get smarter. I look at the fact that, you know, how many restaurants were affected coming out of COVID. They're going to invest those dollars back into the business, but they're going to invest it in really high-level culinarians, really high-level mixologists, really high-level customer service people, and let technology rule the day. But that also means outsourcing. And I think we, you know, outsourcing is going to help these restaurants be better. And, you know, you can look at companies like Cintas, you can look at companies like Ecolab or Cisco that have all provided support to the restaurant industry for many, many years. We're trying to fit into that space as well, just on this side of it. Excellent. I like it. Thank you for that final question. I appreciate it very much, Mark. So everybody, in closing, let's focus on a single fact that our businesses do not become extraordinary in a single moment. Instead, they get there as a result of the owner learning about and then creating a visionary strategy of having a system of management to execute that strategy. And number three, leveraging high performance teams. Now you can get your hands on how to put those three things in place. Just go to getbillsgift.com. That's getbillsgift.com. Thanks for listening. Mark, thanks very much for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great.